0: Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Ricori, an Executive Director of the Center. And for this first podcast of 2022, I want to feature a book that we published now some year and a half ago, but it's an evergreen. It's a historical book that I think really deserves more attention and is a important part of illuminating the immigration debate and what's really going on here. And the book is Losing Control. The subhead is How a Left-Right Coalition Blocked Immigration Reform and Provoked the Backlash that Elected Trump. And the author who is joining us is Jerry Cammer, a fellow at center and a Pulitzer Prize winner, winner of other journalistic prizes, was a reporter for a long time and dealt with the immigration issues and with the Southwest very extensively and this book is basically a biography of the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act and specifically the part of it that banned the employment of illegal immigrants, how that came to be and how that worked out, you know, after it was passed. So, Jerry, thanks for joining us. And if you could maybe first just give people a little background about yourself, how did you get into the immigration issue? What did you do before you got into this business?
1: Well, Mark, after growing up in Maryland and going to college at Notre Dame, I went west. To uh, Arizona. Thought I was just going to be there for a year working as a teacher, coach, and school bus driver at a Catholic school on the Navajo reservation, but ended up staying to be a reporter, first for the Navajo Times and eventually with the Arizona Republic. And in 1986, I became the Northern Mexico correspondent for the Arizona Republic, living in Hermosillo, which is the capital of the border state of Sonora. And I moved down there, actually, just a month before Congress passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, as we know it, and became fascinated by the issue and wanted to cover it and have been covering it ever since. As you say, the the book is an effort to tell the story of how IRCA came to be and what it was intended to do and how half of it's compromise was blocked by the strange bedfellows left-right coalition, people on the left who didn't want immigration limits for political or ideological reasons, humanitarian reasons, people on the right who for libertarian and business interests didn't believe in limiting immigration either. They wanted access to a large supply of labor. Loose labor markets was their ultimate goal.
0: And just to be clear for listeners, the bargain basically you're talking about, this is the big 1986 bill. People you know, refer to it, think about it, as the big amnesty that President Reagan signed, but that was one half of the bill. In other words, it was a bargain exchanging an amnesty for people who were already here and established, who were illegal immigrants, in exchange for a first ever ban on hiring illegals in the future to hopefully weaken the magnet of jobs pulling people in illegally. And what you mean is that the amnesty happened and the other part of that bargain wasn't really followed through on. And that's basically what the bulk of your book is, kind of a chronological look at how that promise of that bargain was not kept. Is that correct?
1: Right. I also try to anticipate what has happened in recent years. I think you can see the 86 legislation irca as a classic democratic dialectic we had a thesis on the left for very loose borders if not open borders on the far right on the restrictionist right you had some people who wanted to cut down immigration drastically and what we had in irca was a, a synthesis and that was a, took the form of a compromise which had the two basic features you described uh, amnesty for Those who were here in undocumented status for at least five years, coupled with enforcement at the work site to prevent future waves of illegal immigration.
0: Right. So, why don't we talk a little bit about what happened? In other words, how did IRCA come about? You have a section at the beginning about, I think you call it, uh, you know, Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan or something. In other words, what were the discussions and the back and forth that got to? The 1986 law being signed in the first place.
1: Yeah, I begin the book with a discussion of the Harry Truman administration in the aftermath of World War II, attempting to establish an orderly immigration format with Mexico at a time when immigration was becoming chaotic and there was a lot of turmoil about the influx of low-skilled Mexican workers, especially into the Southwest, who were greeted. By the growers, the large agricultural producers of fruits and vegetables, but who caused a great deal of consternation among advocates of American workers. And it was especially, I think, negative for the Mexican-American workers in the Rio Grande Valley who faced the displacement and competition from people coming in from Mexico. So the Truman administration led to a report which said we must act to stop illegal immigration. We have to regulate immigration. And that began a pattern that showed a lot of people in the Democratic left really pushing for restrictions, for limits, and for enforcement of those immigration limits. And for the belief that if we have limits and do not enforce them, basically we are pretending. And that's a dynamic that has played out for a long time. And that certainly we see with the passage of IRCA in 1986. We have a law that established limits and promised to enforce them, but never followed through with that enforcement. And i follow that narrative all the way through to the administration by presidential administration, all the way through to the election of Donald Trump, who, of course, appealed in very draconian fashion to those who wanted to limit immigration and who were fed up with the federal government only pretending to enforce the limits that were established by law in 1986.
0: And the motivation, as you put it, behind the liberal opposition to illegal immigration, the liberal support for measures to stop illegal crossings from Mexico, was basically a pro-worker effort. In other words, this is why Cesar Chavez was so strongly in favor of immigration enforcement. Wasn't it Fritz Mondale? When he was, I guess, still in the Senate. I don't know, maybe been in the House. He wasn't vice president yet. But, and Hubert Humphrey and others were down there demanding border enforcement because the point was to tighten the labor market for Mexican American workers and others who were already here so that they could bargain for better wages and working conditions, correct?
1: Right. Fritz Mondale complained of what he saw as this flood of his words, a poverty population into the United States. Now, those are words that on the Democratic side of things, you're just not going to hear it anymore. And also, I could point out that on the way between the Truman administration and the Reagan administration, when IRCA was passed, we had a couple of presidential commissions, one headed by Father Theodore Hesburgh, president of Notre Dame in the 1980s, called the Select Commission on Immigration and Refugee Policy. And the second, directed by the late Barbara Jordan, congresswoman from Texas, and a civil rights icon, both of them took very strong positions that in order to have a just immigration system, we needed to protect the interests of those American citizens and immigrants who had the right to jobs and the right to employment. And we had to set limits, set reasonable limits, and then we needed to enforce them. And they really became my guide stars as I developed my own thinking on immigration policy over the 30 years that I wrote about it, actually closer to 35. The idea that it is not racist to want to have limits, no more racist to want to limit immigration than it is anti-capitalism to limit Wall Street, for example. You have limits and you enforce them. And you resist those who do not want to enforce them. But in this case, with immigration, those who did not want effective limits have ended up with the upper hand here. And that has led, Mark, to the frozen situation now where many people on the restrictionist right and some on the restrictionist left are skeptical about other proposals for immigration reform because they have a fool me twice, shame on me caution. They do not believe that anyone on the left is at all committed to enforcing the limits. And I guess you can see that playing out now in the Biden administration, where anyone who gets past the Border Patrol now under the Biden policies basically is home free because the Biden administration has decided not to enforce laws against illegal immigration for those who are in the interior of the United States, unless they get involved in serious crime.
0: And, you know, you can see that change about enforcement in the various pieces of legislation, even the more recent ones that didn't pass, but were debated and dealt with. For instance, during the George W. Bush administration, there was several pieces of legislation to amnesty illegal immigrants. Likewise, with the Gang of Eight bill under Obama, and then under the Biden administration. They introduced legislation too. And the interesting thing is the earlier two efforts under George W. Bush and under Obama did have the same deal ostensibly as IRCA, which was to say exchanging legal status for those already here for tougher enforcement going forward so you wouldn't just recreate the problem five or 10 years from now. I personally think those were insincere offers, even if they were sincere, they wouldn't have been followed through on. That's kind of the fool me twice, shame on me aspect of it. But the interesting thing is that under this administration, the big immigration bill that they introduced early on, which is basically a dead letter, it's just for show, but it tells you something, is that it had legalization and increases in immigration, but no, not even pretending to have enforcement in the future. In other words, both in the legislation this White House has supported and in their actions, as you suggested, there doesn't seem to be any interest in enforcing immigration laws at all. So, I mean, the debate isn't even really now about what kind of compromises should we talk about in order to have a more kind of stable immigration situation. Instead, it's There should be no immigration laws, and both in their proposed legislation and in their actions, they kind of are, you know, making clear that they are opposed to immigration enforcement.
1: Right. Let me just point to something that Senator Schumer said back in 2007. This will help illustrate just how far the Democrats have moved away from any notion of enforcement. Schumer wrote in 2007, quote, Democrats should become the party that aggressively staunches the flow of illegal immigrants. Ending illegal immigration is not about closing our doors. It's about enforcing the law and protecting the rights that working Americans have spent more than 100 years fighting to win. And if you look at the change that has taken place within the Democrats, we saw it dramatically in the Democratic primary where Bernie Sanders started out ridiculing as a Koch Brothers proposal, Ezra Klein's idea that in the interest of reducing world poverty, we should consider open borders. He ridiculed that, but in his fight to get the Democratic nomination in the competition with Hillary Clinton, courted more and more the activists within the Democratic Party, who since that time have really become the center of gravity of the Democrats, also obviously have a great deal of sway even now within the Biden administration.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the the interesting thing here is that that change between what Schumer said then and what he would say now, and I mean he would be drummed out of the party if he said those things that he literally just said, what was it, fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago, and likewise with the change that you saw with Sanders, is that the left has viewed immigration in the past through a class prism. In other words, it's a class issue that immigration was used by capital to screw workers, which it was and still is. But they have shifted from that, I think, to view it through almost entirely a race prism so that it's good because immigrants are largely non-white. And I think that explains what's happened. But it also is, it seems to me an extremely unfortunate development because it leads to the kind of stalemate On immigration that we have today.
1: That's a major focus of the book. As you know, the middle section of the book, I have separate chapters on institutions on the left that have moved towards open borders and increasingly toward the idea that efforts to limit immigration, to regulate immigration, are racist inherently and aimed against minorities. The charges, they're not intended to establish an orderly system but they're intended to target and limit the immigration of people of color. In the book, we look at what has happened at the New York Times, for example, where the woke philosophy has taken root, actually, for many years. We look at the labor unions, which in 2000 decided that, well, since we failed in our efforts to get Congress to limit unauthorized immigration, we're now going to try to recruit immigrants, including the undocumented. I have an entire chapter on the gap between the black political class and the black working class, the political class seeing immigration as part of the overall civil rights struggle in order to form an alliance with Hispanic politicians for immigration. But many, many members of the black working class feeling very disadvantaged and pressing for Congress to limit immigration. And President Obama, when he was running, For the presidency, expressed great sympathy for them, as did President Clinton. And then I have a a large chapter on the Sierra Club how the Sierra Club went from a position calling for Congress to limit immigration so that we will stabilize our population to essentially surrendering to the forces on the far left who attacked the Sierra Club position and who forced the Sierra Club to back off from that position and to not be involved in the immigration debate. And that's one point I think we should just acknowledge that immigration is in part a labor policy but it is in part also it's a population policy. And we have not had the population discussion in our country for about 30 years now. It's politically out of bounds. We hit 100 million people in the United States population in 1915, a little bit more than 100 years ago. Now we're at three hundred and thirty three million, I think it is, and I think we should have a discussion about what do we want our population to be, what should it be a hundred years from now. And if we have a very loose immigration and asylum policy, I think we could easily double or even triple our population. We should have a discussion as to whether that's a good idea.
0: Now, in your book you started, like I'd said, with sort of a historical background. What kind of things led up to The passage of IRCA. And then the second part, like you said, is how a lot of these important institutions, especially liberal ones, completely shifted their take on it. The third part is basically a chronological look at how what happened to enforcing the immigration law, enforcing specifically what is known in shorthand as employer sanctions. In other words, the ban on hiring illegals. Because before 86, it was explicitly permitted to hire illegal immigrants and that part of it where you go through and talk about particular instances even of attempts at enforcing the ban and hiring illegals and how they were undermined or stymied I think is really telling because it's not just it didn't just it wasn't just one outlier where it happened once in a while it was really a pattern are there a few maybe particular stories from that part, in other words, particularly outrageous examples of the undermining of enforcing immigration laws that you might share with us?
1: Yeah, sure. I tell a story told to me by a now-retired Border Patrol agent named Mike Moon out in the El Paso area. Mike and others out there were very optimistic after the passage of ERCA, thinking that the government was finally going to get serious about stopping the waves of illegal immigration. And, you know, the idea was that if employers exhibited a pattern of this type of hiring, they would be fined. And they also ran the risk of criminal sanctions. They risked jail time. And Mike Moon talked about doing a very careful investigation into a Walmart in El Paso that hired men who came over without authorization illegally from Mexico. And Walmart was hiring these men to assemble bicycles. And apparently this was being done at a rather large scale. Mike Moon wrote up a report, and the legal department within the government decided that rather than go to court and really try to slam Walmart, they would negotiate. And they negotiated down to a fine that Mike Moon said basically was nothing more than a slap on the wrist. And it was a sign that the government was not really serious about enforcing the limits. I heard many similar stories from agents who basically said that we were not given the resources and we were not given the support in order to make the law effective. They thought it could have it could have worked, and some of them will tell you that employer sanctions, worksite enforcement could work today if we got serious about it. They just don't believe that our government and that interest groups on the left and right are gonna let that happen.
0: Yeah, and those incidents early on really established the pattern for both Republican and Democratic administrations right. to not be serious about enforcing the law. Just so people who were maybe weren't paying attention at the beginning, the book is entitled Losing Control. Jerry Kammer is our guest. He's the author, K-A-M-M-E-R. It's on Amazon in paperback and electronic and audio format. So however you roll, This book is for you. And a point I wanted to make, too, is there's no charts and graphs in this. This is not a wonk book. This is a reporter's book. It's a story, a series of stories, and it's very readable. It's not spinach. It's dessert, if you're interested in this subject. There was one story I thought was interesting as far as undercutting employer sanctions. It was about a cafeteria, Luby's Cafeteria or something in Texas, where they actually got a call where they were going to be doing an enforcement operation and then they were told to stop. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, boy, that investigation into Luby's cafeteria's chain, especially prominent in Texas, took a long time, and the agents were ready to go in and enforce against Luby at the corporate level when they got a call from the Republican congressman from San Antonio, whose name escapes me at the moment, Mark. It's all right. Saying, Luby's one of our biggest employers in the area. Can we back off here and try to be nice, essentially, is what he was saying. The chief said, no, no, sir, we've done our work. We have given them their warnings, and we are now prepared to proceed with enforcement. Well, the congressman expressed his disappointment. The chief continued with his preparation, and just before the men were supposed to go in and launch the enforcement action. They got a call from their superiors in Washington, D.C., saying, sorry, fellas, this is called off, back off, we're not going to go against Lubies." And that was a Republican congressman from Texas, and we had people on both sides of the aisle who did not want to see enforcement, and who basically undermined the achievement of other people on the left and right who had come together in 1986 to achieve this compromise legislation it has been blown up by the deliberate undermining of the enforcement of employer sanctions
0: now you in the subtitle of the book how a left right coalition blocked immigration reform and provoked the backlash that elected trump you're pretty clear about what you think the political consequences of this have been how was it that this basically welshing on the 1986 deal of enforcement in exchange for amnesty how did that fuel Trump?
1: Well, from there, I write about this at some length in the introduction, Mark, to set up the book. And I think I'll just go to a quote from George Packer of The New Yorker. I'll just read a passage here from the book. Okay. George Packer, writing in The New Yorker, credited Trump with understanding an emergent fact of American life in an era when the political establishment of both the Democratic and Republican parties endorsed free trade, loose borders, and expansive immigration. Quote, The middle-aged white working class has suffered at least as much as any demographic group because of globalization, low-wage immigrant labor, and free trade, Packer wrote. Trump sensed the rage that flared from this pain and made it the fuel of his campaign. I think Packer articulates very crisply some themes that I developed at length in the book that opened the way for Donald Trump to become president.
0: And so what lessons should people take from this? For people who are immigration restrictionists, whether conservative or liberal, they've kind of put their cards on the table. I think there's a lot of willingness to be flexible on things like amnesty if There is a real commitment to enforcing the law, but those promises have been insincere and reneged on. What are the lessons today for basically people who do want to legalize some portion of the illegal immigrants? What have they been doing wrong up to now?
1: Well, I think that we have a situation where the dialectic, you know, you have the antithesis leading to a synthesis. That's what happened in 1986, but it's just very difficult to see that happening now because both the left and the right have moved farther and farther to their corners, and the Democratic Party has moved drastically, and, and its positions on immigration, on schools, on crime, and, and, and law enforcement have led to a resounding rebuke in the midterm elections, and let's hope forcing a wake-up call for the Democratic Party. And I personally would like to see the Republican Party, which has moved increasingly out of frustration to the obstructionist right, thinking anything that has to do with another amnesty is unacceptable. I would like to see them show some willingness to go back to the 86 basic idea that if we can have some amnesty as long as we are serious, about limiting future waves of illegal immigration, that's still the sweet spot, Mark, and that's where I think our country's best chance has. But given the political climate of the time, and the radicalization of both parties, and each party radicalizing the other with its factions, it's tough to be optimistic. But I think we have to try to be optimistic and push our political leaders in that direction.
0: To be fair to the Republican side, and I know you're. Uh... You're a Democrat and I'm not. But, you know, in 2018, the Trump administration, of all people, put forward legislation that would have amnesty Dreamers very broadly described. It would have been two to three million people getting an amnesty in exchange for enforcement changes and some legal immigration, chain migration changes. And it almost passed the House. It it frankly was only because of Paul Ryan and his libertarian perspective, he was Speaker of the House at the time, sabotaging the legislation that it didn't pass. So my only point here is that I think there actually is significant flexibility among Republicans, potentially. I don't actually see the mainstream right, even the sort of insurgent populist right, at least the mainstream part of it, I don't mean the kooky tiki torch guys, I think the flexibility is always there. I don't actually think they have radicalized nearly as much as the left has radicalized. I mean, I'm not trying to sort of be self-serving here, but it just doesn't strike me as that being the case.
1: Okay, just for the record, I'm not a Democrat. I'm uh, I'm Well, you're not a
0: Republican anyway.
1: (laughs) And I don't really think that Trump was serious about that that proposal for some form of, of amnesty. He floated it in a meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Dick Durbin, but then he backed off very quickly when he took flack because Rush Limbaugh went on the air and said, if this is happening, I'm out. And Trump very quickly backed off right. any discussion of that. I tell that story in the book.
0: Right, right. So the book, again, it's Losing Control by Jerry Kammer, K-A-M-M-E-R. It's on Amazon. It's got really striking cover art by... Um, Michael Ramirez is a well-known political cartoonist. Yeah, Mike Ramirez. Statue of Liberty with people kind of climbing all over it. It's a really it's a striking uh, interesting piece of artwork for the cover. And again, it's available in paperback and electronic and audio for however you like to consume your books. Are you working on anything now, Jerry, that might be uh, of interest in coming out in the future?
1: Well, I'm still interested in immigration. Mark very interested. But right now, I am pursuing my interest in the history of of southern Arizona, particularly the area where the Mexican border and the former homeland of Geronimo and Cochise, Hmm. where they all come together in a a very, very interesting part of our country. And that's my passion for the time being anyway.
0: I'll look forward to reading that when it comes out. In the meantime... For readers who are interested, Jerry Kammer, K-A-M-M-E-R, Losing Control, is the book. And Jerry, you tell me you're in sunny and warm Arizona right now, which sounds pretty good compared to where we are here in Washington, D.C. So enjoy the weather, and we'll talk again at some point in the future.
1: Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it very much.
0: Thanks. Finally, I wanted to expand a little bit on something that Jerry and I had talked about, and that's how do we get to a more politically stable, kind of a policy equilibrium, if you will, on immigration? Because we can't just keep ping-ponging back and forth. You know, one administration does one thing, the next one undoes everything the previous one did. That's just not sustainable. That doesn't mean that policy is never gonna change, but we need a little bit more stability in immigration policy Based on at least some degree of consensus, and we have we're nowhere near that right now, unfortunately. But the way I see us getting to that is not the approach that we saw in the 1986 law, which was attempted to be recreated under George W. Bush and Obama, where The illegal immigrants all got amnesty in exchange for promises that someday in the future the immigration law would be enforced. It's kind of like the old joke for those of you old enough to remember the Popeye cartoons. There was a character, Wimpy was his name, and he always had hamburgers, always wanted hamburgers. There's a whole hamburger chain in England, at least there used to be, called Wimpy's Hamburgers. And his line was, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today because he never carried any money with him. And that's essentially been the deal, the trick that the anti-borders, anti-enforcement people have pulled is that they keep wanting amnesty up front in exchange for promises of enforcement, which are not kept. And that is what's poisoned this debate and frankly fueled a lot of the populist outrage in our politics today. So it seems to me trying to repeat that Recreate that. Do it again. Isn't a solution. You know the, what is it? The definition of his insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. What we need to do is approach this issue differently. And I'm actually kind of a squish on amnesty. I see the logic, or at least the prudential case, to be made for legalizing people because you don't want millions and millions of people in your country who don't have. Legal status. And so it seems to me the way to go about it is not give amnesty up front and promise enforcement in the future. It's the other way around. The enforcement has to come first with no preconditions or at least few preconditions. I could actually see in order to get some of the measures that I'll spell out here some piecemeal amnesties as a kind of sweetener. But we need to have three enforcement systems or policies in place up front. You never know what a future administration is going to do, but there are systems that exist that need to be up and running, functioning before we talk about Amnesty. And there's three quick things there. One is e-verify. This is a free online system. Exists now, but it's voluntary. It's not universally used. So when an employer hires somebody, And takes his Social Security and IRS information, simply verifies that online. Is the name real? Does it match the Social Security number and the date of birth? About half of new hires every year are screened through this system. And you know, for a government program, it actually works pretty well. The problem is most of the illegals are in the other half. Making that mandatory up front, not as a promise after an amnesty is done, but before any amnesty is enacted. Secondly, we need an entry-exit tracking system for foreign visitors. This matters because a very large share, 40 percent, maybe 50, 60 percent, depends on the year and the researcher may do in the estimate, but a very large share of each year's new illegal aliens are people who come in legally and then just never leave. Visa overstays, they're called, as opposed to border jumpers. Well, We have a pretty good system now of checking people in, foreign visitors, checking them in when they come to the country. Since 9-11, it really has gotten better. The problem is we don't have a particularly good system for checking them out when they leave. And if you don't know who's left, you don't know who's still here. And Congress has repeatedly mandated the development of an electronic entry-exit tracking system, a check-in-check-out system for foreign visitors it still doesn't exist. They've made some steps in the right direction. They've done some pilot programs. But until that's fully up and running, you can't amnesty the people who are already here because you're just going to get more illegal aliens in the future. And the third policy that has to be in place before any discussion even of an amnesty is that sanctuary policies have to be prohibited. Local law enforcement has to cooperate with ICE. This doesn't mean they go around asking people for their green cards. ICE doesn't want local police doing that. ICE itself doesn't even do that. What they need, though, is when people are arrested for regular state and local offenses, they're beating up their girlfriends, selling drugs, driving drunk, whatever it is, those fingerprints, even now, are automatically go to Homeland Security as well as to the FBI. So ICE actually knows Most illegal immigrants who get arrested for crimes, what sanctuary cities do is they refuse to hand them over and they just let them go onto the street. And that has to end. So when you have those three systems up and running, then you can talk about what the bargain should be, the grand bargain of amnesty in exchange for a policy change. And the 1986 deal and all the other ones proposed after that, the bargain was amnesty in exchange for promises of enforcement. In the way I see it, and the only way I think it can work, is if, like I said, the enforcement systems have to come first, and then the grand bargain is amnesty in exchange for an end to this latest era of mass immigration. Significant cuts in legal immigration, confining it to Husbands, wives, and little kids of US citizens, plus a relatively small number of genuine Einsteins from abroad and people who are humanitarian immigrants but who have literally nowhere else to go and can't stay a second longer where they are. There aren't that many people who fit that definition. And the amnesty part of it should be relatively clean and simple. Rip off the band aid, no 13 year path to citizenship nonsense. In the 1986 amnesty, people got a provisional status, I think, for two years, and they had to attend some basic English and uh, American history and civics classes in order to get the permanent green card. Something like that would be a good idea. But the basic point, though, is legalize the illegal immigrants who are here because of our past policy errors in exchange for bringing an end to mass immigration. Because the problem with illegal immigration is not simply its illegality. Because if that's all there were to it, then we just adopt a policy of unlimited immigration. Anybody who wanted to come here would be allowed in legally. That's the position of the Democratic Party today and the position of the corporate and libertarian elements on the Republican Party. That is not what the public want. It's not the policy that actually benefits, promotes the national interest. The problem is that we have too much immigration, illegal or legal. And so fixing the problems of illegal immigration has to be combined with dramatically reducing legal immigration. It would be like a 50 or 60% reduction in future legal immigration. It still would be a high level of immigration, but it would be much lower than we've been experiencing now. And that's the only way that I think we can get ourselves out of this dead end, this political dead end, that we have gotten ourselves into with regard to immigration. This is Mark Krikorian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. If you like it and you listen to this podcast on one of the platforms that allows reviews, please give us a five-star review. If uh, you have a review substantively that is something we, I'd like to see, please feel free to email it to me. My email address is msk at cis.org. That's msk, my initials, at cis.org. And if something is genuinely interesting uh, as far as the review goes, I might actually even read it on the air. So until next time, thanks for joining Parsing Immigration Policy.